you know, there's always a question of how do you pay for it? It's a fair question and should always be asked. And I've always been a pay-as-you-go kind of person. But this is a once-in-a-hundred-year event. And the question is, what's the cost of us doing nothing? Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Peter Welch has been Vermont's lone congressional representative since 2006. He is Chief Deputy Whip of the House Democratic Caucus and serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. He's a member of the House Progressive Caucus. Congressman Peter Welch, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. The news has become apocalyptic. Uh, Climate crisis is now in full force with these wildfires and now hurricanes. The country's in the midst of a plague. White supremacists are on the rise. Federal occupations of American cities have taken place. There are doubts about fair elections. And meanwhile, President Trump went to California this week and has denied climate change and is threatening Democratic-led cities and states with more violence. People I talk to sound destabilized and worried. Are you worried? Uh, yeah, I am worried. I'm extremely, extremely worried. Uh, I've not seen anything like this in my lifetime, David. I mean, when you think about what's going on uh, in that litany that you just uh, laid out for us, it was very accurate. Uh, it's as though we have the economy of the 1930s, the Great Depression. You know, we have more people unemployed right now than we've had since the Great Depression. Uh, we have a pandemic uh, that is brutal. And of course, the United States is in the worst of it. We've got 4% of the population. We've had 24% of the deaths. But that is an event that last happened 102 years ago in 1918. And then, of course, we've got Black Lives Matter, which is the one hopeful uh, 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 development. But it's a reflection uh, of the, uh, the beginning of America to awaken uh, to the centuries of racial injustice uh, in this country. So there is an enormous amount uh, that has happened in this, uh, in this year, combining the Great Depression, combining the Great Pandemic, and then uh, reviving uh, and finally bringing to the fore the unresolved issues of racial injustice. And this is the other thing that is part of this that you didn't mention, but I think is extremely important. Income inequality. We, you know, half of America who work for wages and a lot of folks on salaries, in effect, have not had a raise in 30 years. And that has been so hard on local communities where those connections that you build because you have work, because they're stable communities, because they're stable softball leagues, things that allow all of us to find a way to be engaged with our fellow citizens and have some confidence in ourselves and our ability to uh, feed our family and be a good citizen. Those are under enormous assault. And of course, I I think there's a direct connection to that erosion of, of civic community and the rise in the opioid crisis. So all of this is going on while we have a president who does not believe in democracy and is doing everything that he can to erode it and to kill it. So we have challenges that require 
a political system that's responsive and that requires uh, a, a political leadership that tries to build trust because you can't solve complicated problems, whether it's in your own family or in your own town or your own local institution, like a school, unless there's some degree of mutual trust and mutual respect. And we have a president now, David, who has adopted as his mode of operation division, racial animosity, uh, pitting one group against another. Uh, and you couldn't have a worse leader for the most challenging time that we've been living in in my lifetime. Why do you call Black Lives Matter the bright spot? This is uh, a movement that President Trump and Republicans have demonized. We've denied the legacy of slavery in this country. And we have, what, what has happened is that with these extraordinary things, and of course, George Floyd was the most explicit and most uh, painful video to watch where uh, that officer uh, put his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And where we were all, as we observed that, painfully as it was, we're seeing a bad man do a very bad thing. But the way in which he did it, his hands were in his pocket, he was relaxed, he knew that his colleagues were uh, witnessing this. He knew that passers-by, people on the street, citizens were witnessing it. He had a casual attitude that reflected that he felt he had, that he, the department had his back and the community would have his back. So it was a wicked uh, display of how there was a culture that he was, that officer was operating in where he thought what he was doing was okay, shocking as it was. And I think that awakened for a lot of Americans a realization that yes, they've had suffering. You know, uh, your own community has had suffering, losing those wonderful students a few years ago, that horrible accident. But the suffering that has been inflicted on African Americans from 1619 when that first ship arrived with 20 slaves, 20 kidnapped Africans, that and through up until the Civil War, with one respite, 12 years during Reconstruction, when African Americans had a vote, they were full participants, beginning to be in education, in science, in politics. And then we went into the end of Reconstruction and a, a century of Jim Crow and lynchings. There's a growing awareness now that that suffering is on the basis of the color of their skin. Are you in and favor of reparations? I'm for addressing this. And, you know, the term reparations has to include acknowledgement that this stain of slavery has inflicted enormous harm on people on the basis of the color of their skin. And I think reparations begins with acknowledging that. It begins by acknowledging that, that 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 suffering that's been inflicted, that injustice that was inflicted, was because through, through slavery, through Jim Crow, was on the basis of the color of uh, African-American skin. We have to address that. And the term, whatever term you want to use, that's real. 
and the beginning of healing, in the beginning of progress, in the beginning of a Martin Luther King redemptive approach to racial healing uh, is, requires an acknowledgement of, of what is so core to the history of this country. Let's talk about what's happening now. You mentioned the Great Depression, uh, the economy being in a state not seen since then. So right now, about 30 million people are receiving unemployment benefits. Uh, Almost a quarter of small businesses said they would need additional financial assistance to survive in the coming months. But it looks like Congress is unable to agree on providing additional aid. So are Americans and Vermonters on their own to survive the pandemic and the economic fallout? I'm incredibly fearful that if we are unable to provide more aid, that is exactly what will happen. And that's unconscionable. I mean, what happened here, just to go back, is that the virus came, the, it, it was ignored by the president, as, as we know, but it reared its uh, powerful head in March. And initially, Congress did act, and it acted in a unified way, where Nancy Pelosi and uh, Senator McConnell put a $2.2 trillion rescue package. And it was that $1,200 check. It was the $600 supplemental unemployment benefits. It was the payroll protection plan that helped a lot of our small businesses. And we made it more flexible uh, so that it could help even more. It was state and local aid. And that, by all accounts, really provided absolutely essential relief for people and businesses who lost their, uh, lost their revenue and their livelihood through no fault of their own, but as a result of COVID. That aid has expired. The House has passed a $3 trillion supplemental bill that would provide state and local aid to Vermont and to our municipalities. Another $1,200 check, continue aid to small business. My view very strongly is we need that. There's a division in the Republican Senate right now, and they're holding it up. Senator McConnell says, no state aid. Let states declare bankruptcy. Uh, They're saying that uh, unemployment is coming down. It's really healing. Well, that's news to a lot of folks in Vermont who are still trying to figure out uh, how to get an income. They're saying schools can open up and figure it out. That's a local decision. But I was at Winooski yesterday, and I saw, and they are opening, And but I saw the extraordinary effort and resources that had to be used in order to protect those kids and those teachers. And Winooski's doing it, but they can't do that on their own in the local property taxpayers. That's why the money that we have in the HEROES Act to help our local schools open up is really, really important. So we're getting into that, that moment where the division in this country uh, is about the division in values. During this, for this coronavirus, for us to vanquish the uh, the virus and to help people get to the other side of this with their, their livelihoods intact, we have to have a very active, very committed, very ambitious federal government that is willing to get the money out to the folks in the small businesses in the state and local governments that need it. And, you know, there's always a question of how do you pay for it? It's a fair question. It should always be asked. And I've always been a pay-as-you-go kind of person. But this is a once-in-a-hundred-year event. And the question is, what's the cost of us doing nothing versus the cost of us helping folks stay on 
so that when we come out, we have our local restaurants intact, our local nonprofits intact, where families who've had to juggle homeschooling and then the question of going back to work or, or staying home because their kids need them. Uh, we need daycare. So my view is that we've got to be all in. We have to keep the foot on the gas pedal, not tap the brakes at this point. So and, is this just political theater and brinksmanship that we're seeing with uh, McConnell uh, not getting something passed? Or do you think something will be passed, further aid to people? Well, I hope it will be passed. And my view is that we should stay in session until we do have additional aid to the states to be passed. And if we can work with Senator McConnell on something that's a compromise, but that does significant uh, uh, aid to individuals who need it, folks who are unemployed, state and local communities, I'm willing to compromise. Uh, you know, we're going to have an election very soon. And uh, the American people are going to get the final say on whether it's four more years or we get real new leadership. So we'll have a chance. My hope is that we do get new leadership in the Senate and with the presidency. Uh, but I'd like us to stay in Washington, uh, stay in session until we do get an agreement that's going to provide immediate aid uh, to our economy that needs it. You know, it's not just political brinksmanship. This is the thing that's so worrisome because uh, there's really a clash of values. You know, when you asked, are you on your own? In my view is that Senator McConnell thinks that's fine because the folks he's representing do fine on their own. You know, if you've been investing in the stock market, you're lucky and you've got assets that have been appreciating in value. Uh, you know, if you're a corporate executive and your pay has exploded uh, and the gap between what a worker makes and what a corporate CEO makes has never been higher, uh, then you're fine on your own. You can go to private school, you can get a private plane maybe and take a vacation at a place that's really uh, COVID safe. So on your own works for folks who uh, have the wealth to be able to be on their own. But for us in Vermont, you know, and I think this is not just, uh, you know, some people have a lot, more, a lot of money in Vermont. A lot of people really work hard and don't. But we've got more of a tradition in the state of not wanting to necessarily be on our own. We want to be independent. We want to be responsible. But, you know, a lot of Vermonters feel pretty good when they can help their neighbor. A lot of Vermonters feel really good when they can volunteer and be on their local fire department. A lot of Vermonters feel good when they can take their energy, their effort, their resources, and use them for something larger than just themselves. And, you know, I think that's the reason why we've done so well here uh, with uh, COVID. You know, you've had strong leadership from the governor who believes, on, believes in science uh, and public health. But you also have a lot of cooperation from Vermonters who don't get into a fight about whether it's a political statement to wear a mask. It just makes sense. And it's, and it's good for your health. It's good for your ability to protect the health of your neighbors. So we've got a clash of values uh, in D.C. And that's where I believe this election is so important because fundamentally, we all have to make a decision uh, as to who we want to continue leading us. And what's so worrisome to me about Donald Trump is not his positions on tax policy or even the environment. In, uh, in, these, in both cases, they're disastrous. It's his objection to the basic norms of democracy. 
and it his it it's his unique adoption of a political approach that is based on dividing people. You know, the chief executive of our, of our country, whoever that is, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, that's the one person the country looks to to help us have some capacity for common effort and common understanding and for mutual respect. But what Trump has done is found a way whereby trying to incite, quote, his base uh, by dividing us as Americans, that works for him. And of course, he's a minority elected president. He got three million fewer votes than Hillary. Right. And Trump, Trump, making- Trump can't do this alone. And he's had lots of help from your colleagues, your Republican colleagues, who have enabled everything that he's doing. I mean, we do That's have correct. a system of checks and balances that in theory could work if Congress were to act in an independent fashion. How do you explain what you see among your colleagues who've enabled most of what Trump has done? That's the biggest lament I have. I mean, as you know, I do my very level best to work with Republicans. And of course in Vermont, you know, we've had a tradition of Republicans and Democrats working pretty well together. And we've had a tradition of Republicans who are really independent, like uh, Bob Stafford, like Jim Jeffords. Um, and like many of our governors. But what's happened in D.C. is that the reality of Trump's power electorally with the Republican primary base has overwhelmed my uh, Republican colleagues. And the thing they fear, and with justification, is a negative tweet by President Trump, and that leads to them being primaried and them losing. That's happened time and again. So what I've seen with my Republican colleagues is that they've got to make a choice. It's an existential choice. They've got to move on because if they want to assert their independence, they'll get that tweet or they've got to accommodate and in effect toe the line and be supportive of a president and a a way of conduct that they would privately object to. Uh, let me ask about the Postal Service. Um, reports are now confirming that there has been a noticeable slowdown in the mail, where first-class mail that took three days has now taken four or five. Um, what is Congress doing to protect the Postal Service? Well, in the HEROES Act that I mentioned, we put $25 billion into the Postal Service uh, to uh, give them the resources that they need. Uh, and they've got a couple of things. One revenues have dropped significantly because of COVID, just like in other enterprises. So does Congress step in to protect the traditional role that the Postal Service has had of delivering mail? It's a service. It's not a business. So we put the money in in the House. Second, there are reforms that are needed uh, that uh, we're addressing the Postal Service is required to pre-fund. This is really arcane, but it's really important. They have to pre-fund their retirement and healthcare benefits for 75 years. No other enterprise has to do that. And that was something that was put in by enemies of the Postal Service as a way of trying to make them look financially really bad. In our legislation, we removed that. Okay, so they could have normal accounting rather than uh, this bogus uh, <clears throat> pardon me, doomsday accounting, that's stalled in the Senate. Okay, Mitch McConnell won't take that up. 
And then the third thing is that President Trump did with the Postal Service, what he's done with the EPA, what he's done with the State Department, he's just wrecking it. He's doing everything he can, like just as an example, in the Environmental Protection Agency, we've lost a thousand scientists. And again, that's a the Trump uh, approach to uh, a wrecking ball on our institutions. In the Postal Service, what he's done is appointed uh, someone who contributed over $3 million in the past four years to the Republican National Committee and to President Trump. And as you know, the, the President Trump has said explicitly his words, he's against mail-in voting. And he said that if we deny the Postal Service the money they need to get the job done, we won't be able to have mail-in voting. And then he got as his a postmaster general, this Mr. DeJoy, who's given him and his campaign and his party $3 million. And Mr. DeJoy is going to work uh, doing the president's bidding to slow things down. He's getting rid of those uh, uh, postal sorting machines. He's getting rid of mailboxes. He's prohibiting overtime. Uh, so you've got another situation where the president is crossing a line that previous presidents, Republican and Democrat, haven't crossed, and that is to turn the Postal Service into a political operation for his advantage. So, I mean, is Congress just impotent to do? I must say the the attack on the Postal Service is was one of those uh, lines that I didn't imagine crossing, that a president right. would cripple the Postal Service at a time when people need the Postal Service the most. Um, so Congress can't do anything? Well, when you have it, this is the reality of our democracy, all right? If you have a divided Congress and you have uh, the Democrats who pass legislation to address this, but you have a Senate majority leader uh, who has the authority under Senate rules to decide yes or no on whether a bill even is considered, then you have a deadlock. So when you use the collective of Congress, the answer is yes. They end up doing the president's bidding by default because in the case of the House where we act, we can't pass a bill. We can't sign the legislation. We can pass it from the House to the Senate, but then in our system of checks and balances, the Senate can block it or move it. And then it has to go on to the, to the president's signature. So uh, the fact is that there is a check and balance in a divided government with a Mitch McConnell in charge. He can stop consideration of things that the vast majority of Americans think we should address. And that is frustrating for me as a member of Congress, and it's frustrating for citizens. In crisis, there's opportunity. You've been a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. You've been a backer of healthcare for all in, in some fashion. So do you think that if Biden is elected, uh, and Biden, of course, is a very centrist politician and does not back any of these things, but he is going to be facing post-depression economy or perhaps a mid-depression economy, is it possible that these kind of big political changes could happen because they have to happen? I think it is possible. And I think, I think Joe Biden will not be an impediment to progressive change. And if the Congress can pass health care for all, if we can pass a Green New Deal, um, if we can pass significant campaign finance reform, he'll be quite willing to sign that. I think what Biden does get uh, he gets what peril we're in. And he, I think, understands that, uh, and we all do, that just take climate change. 
120 degree temperatures in Los Angeles. 5,000 acres or 5, 5 million acres have been burned. We have more storms brewing now uh, 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 than we've ever had. And people understand that we need significant action. Healthcare, nobody can afford it, whether it's employer paid or individual paid. The costs are outrageous, including prescription drug prices. You need governmental uh, intervention to protect the access to health care. So we need a, a, a better system. Uh, income inequality, racial injustice, all of these things have been neglected. And I think there is an enormous awareness on the part of the American people that the government that we have has not been in the political system we have has not been delivering for addressing the problems we all share. And the challenge for us, especially with Trump, is can we restore enough faith in government that people will have some confidence? And that's a combination of people making a commitment to participating in the process. And it's a commitment by people who are in elective office of being respectful of the people they represent. But I do think that the, uh, the awareness we need major change, not micro change, uh, is vast within our country. And I think that message is something that a pre a Vice President Biden would be very sensitive to and uh, cooperative with uh, as President Biden. What reassurance can you give or do you feel that American democracy as we've known it will survive the current challenge? Well, we're pretty resilient uh, and we've survived the depression. We've survived the ideological battles of the 30s in uh, 40s. Uh, we've uh, survived the pandemic of 1918. We've survived the Civil War. You know, we, we didn't make the progress after that that we should, but we've, we've survived that in World War II. But let me say how I approach it. I, I approach it that it's the task at hand. And whether we do or we don't, you know, I'm not going to sit around predicting how it's going to come out. I believe that it's in peril. And I believe it's only by the steps we take to renew our commitment to a democratic process and our respect for our fellow citizens, where everybody has an equal vote and everybody should have equal access to vote. It's only by recommitting ourselves to that that we have a shot at keeping it. That's my view. So I'm not in the prediction game. I'm in the observation analysis that we're in trouble right now. And that I, and I do so believe that democracy is fundamentally important uh, to the well-being uh, of our country, that uh, as long as I have an opportunity in or out of office, I'm going to do all I can to try to give us a fair shot at keeping this democracy alive that we've had for well over 200 years. Okay. Well, Congressman Peter Welch, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.